Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Are we good? You there, Jeff? All right. All right. Let's roll. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with just Sarah Cliff. Hey, Matt. Uh, we are a little bit a little bit off schedule. Um, life is complicated. Well, there's a bit of news. One of our Weeds co-hosts, so if you are an Ezra Klein show listener, you may have heard that our Weeds co-host, Ezra Klein, is now a parent. Uh, he is. He had a baby last week. Everyone seems to be healthy and happy and getting into the swing of things. You can hear a little more from him on the Ezra Klein show. And so he will not be here for the next month or so, but we'll be here. Since this is a kind of cuddly, soft place of employment. <laughs> We got we got people out on leave. We got people late to their appointments. But we we're got super a, excited we got for two Ezra. Person. We are. Congratulations. Congratulations. We miss you, but we are very excited for you. It's and amazing. Your Someday family. all the weeds babies are gonna have to record a podcast. Yes. They don't know it yet. They don't know it. But, but it's like, gonna happen. They'll have like 2024 20, takes. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do them for a live show. No. Uh, okay. so that'll be good. Okay, so we we're gonna talk today about Amy Klobuchar. Yes. Uh, Senator from Minnesota, um, interesting ideas about antitrust policy. We're not talking about that. <laughs> They're putting that aside. Um, so uh, he, Amy Klobuchar is an interesting politician. A lot of people get presidential buzz because, you know, they do something noteworthy or they represent an interesting, like, new demographic or, or a distinct ideological cause. And Klobuchar wasn't really like that. Instead, um, some people who'd been like working away at this after the 2016 election, like stats guys, like the, the Democratic Party sabermetricians, reached the conclusion that Amy Klobuchar overperforms the electoral fundamentals like more than any other statewide elected official. Um, so people want to beat Donald Trump and they started to be like Amy Klobuchar hype. And every time I would mention that to anybody I know who works on the Hill, they'd be like, well, you know what they say about Amy Klobuchar. And after enough of these conversations, like, I did know what they say about Amy Klobuchar. Um, what they say about Amy Klobuchar. They, they said she's a bad boss. And it's, it's a frustrating situation for a reporter because you would hear a lot of, like, mm -hmm. second or third hand stories, right? Just, like, random gossip, right? Which, like— 
it was shaping the coverage. It was clearly relevant to Democratic Party politics. But like, I couldn't write an article saying like totally baseless rumors are flying around Capitol Hill saying Amy Klobuchar has done this or that. Um, but you know, people who are more diligent reporters than I am. Um, like ran these stories down and have started to produce, you know, real journalism with sources about. Right. So we've seen this wave of stories in the past two or three weeks, starting with a story from the Huffington Post by Amanda Turkle and Molly Redden, followed by a story in BuzzFeed, um, followed by a story in the New York Times that have all these anecdotes about uh, Amy Klobuchar, ranging from, um, you know a staffer who forgot to bring a fork with her salad on the airplane, leading to a stern reprimand, um, her eating the salad with a comb and tasking that staffer with cleaning the comb. Um, there also, and I'd say like there's a big range of things. So you have things like that. You have things like a remark that she made to her staffers when she was thirsty that she would trade the three of them to, for a bottle of water. You also have things like HR policies, where I think one of the most notable things I've read in any of these Amy Klobuchar stories was um, this expectation or office that if you took any sort of parental leave that you would need to stay three times as long after you came back. Kind of an unspoken, maybe spoken agreement that you couldn't just take off after taking your your leave. And this has created a debate, you know, in media, in the politics world about, you know, why Amy Klobuchar is getting this coverage does this have to do with the fact that she is a woman? Is she legitimately a bad boss? Is she getting criticized in a way a male boss would? You know, you can read a piece our colleague here, Laura McGann, wrote, kind of arguing that a lot of this coverage is a sexist tone to it. You know, as I've read through it, I, it seems to me that both things can be true, that I think women are going to get more attention to their management style, you know, because it is more unusual to have, you know— a demanding, a boss who acts in the way that Amy Klobuchar does, who is female. At the same time, you know, some of the things in these articles I think are, like, legitimately troubling, particularly this stuff around the leave policy, you know, some of her interactions that have been reported. Um, I, I think, you know, it can be both of these things happening at once, colliding into each other. I keep feeling, as I have heard these rumors and then read these stories, like a troubling situation where, like, the factual details matter a lot to me in terms of how I'm thinking about this. Sure. And I'm not really clear on them, right? So, like, one thing that was reported in one of these stories and that also I had heard through the grapevine is that Amy Klobuchar threw a binder at somebody. But then maybe she didn't throw a binder at somebody. Maybe she just threw a binder in frustration and there was a person who was there. And there's a big difference between throwing a binder at someone but missing them and throwing a binder out of aimless frustration and it may be coming close to someone. Like there is, you know, like – but you can even see how like two people actually witnessing the same event would disagree as to what had happened. And then also in my mind, there is a huge difference between somebody once over the course of an 18-year career through a binder in anger – and somebody routinely throws objects in anger, right? Like those are very – because like nobody deserves to be judged on the basis of their worst day. You know what I mean? Like it's not okay to throw things at people. But like everyone has done something that is not great, you know? But if you're doing it all the time, that's like really, really much worse. And it is always like a, a thing that like I just think is challenging about 
journalism in general is that like what you want to know about these things is fact patterns, not just individual anecdotes. And it's really hard to tell. So people will write a story. It's like this story is about how much people don't like working for Amy Klobuchar. And then the bulk of the stuff in the story will be things that you read it, if you read it with a skeptical eye, if you have read Kate Mann's book and you have listened to her appearance on the Ezra Klein show, you'll have, I think, the reaction Laura had and be like, I don't know, like she sends harsh emails, like she really wants people to be deferential to her. Like, why are we so upset about this? But then there will be a couple things sprinkled in the story. That you're like, oh, no, like that is really bad. Right. And so then the question is, is like, are we looking at a background noise of misogyny plus two cherry-picked things out of over more than a decade of behavior? Or are we looking at a constant pattern of egregious behavior in which emails just happen to be easier to document? And I think layered on top of this is what a weird place Congress is to work and, like, the weird situation that congressional staff end up in that are just not normal parts of the job. So, you know, something, you know, I have seen just living in D.C., I've heard from friends who worked on the Hill, is sometimes you get assigned some, like, weird tasks. And some of those you are not actually supposed to be assigned. Things like, you know, walking a congressperson's dog or watching the dog when it comes to the office or picking up dry cleaning, those sorts of things, are are the tasks that a low-level person in a congressperson's office might be tasks with doing. And, you know, on the one hand, like, it would be very weird if my boss asked me to walk her dog or to pick up her dry cleaning or, you know, to run to CVS to get her some nylons. Like, those would be very odd tasks. On the other hand, you know, when you're in Congress, a big part of your job is stepping in front of cameras. It is being presentable. You know, having nylons on hand, having a clean suit jacket, those are things you need to do your job. You're very time-pressed. You are running from one meeting to another. So it becomes not super unusual for those tasks to kind of go to interns, to low-level folks. And it's a fuzzier line than I think you'd see in a lot of the workplaces that we're used to, where those things would be quite obviously not allowed. You know, my boss, you know, I would pick her up a salad. If I'm going out to get a salad, it'd be very weird for her to ask, like, a senior writer at Vox, like, well, go get that salad. If we if we can comp- actually completely sidebar for Amy Klobuchar, <laughs> like, I, I actually think this is, like, a big problem in America, right? Because like, yes, like our boss would not ask us to do stuff like that. At the same time, it would not be unusual if like the big boss of a huge company just like had a personal assistant whose job was, if not personally to drop off dry cleaning, to like to make sure that all of that stuff is done. It's considered valid in a big workplace to be like, look, instead of having the CEO spending time out of his workday, like fussing around with his dentist appointment, like we are going to hire an assistant whose job is to take all this stuff off his plate, right? And in Congress, a lot of members of Congress are very wealthy, right? And members of Congress who are independently wealthy like deploy their wealth to strategically enhance their work as members of Congress. So, for example, one thing that they will do is in addition to owning a house where they live in their district, they will own a second house in Washington, D.C. It'll often be a big house. And at that big house, they can entertain people, which is like 
it's politics. You know what I mean? Like, sure, like having a party is like a social event, but like it's also a political move. And they can pay people out of pocket to be household staff so that they always have their dry cleaning done and blah, 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 blah. Then you have other members who are trying to live on the congressional salary, which, to be clear, it, it's not like it's a poverty wage or anything. Right. I think it's about 160000 right. right now. But that is not enough money to maintain two different households, you know? So you have House members sleeping in their offices. You have people, like, bunking up, like— roommates, like like 20-somethings. Um, and, you know, again, it's not like they're living under terrible living conditions, right? But they are not living like important high-status people. But the resource that they have at their disposal is not money, but staffers. So you can, you can make up for some of these ragged edges by having the staff do this kind of thing. But it's technically against the rules, you know, and you're putting people in a weird position. And I think that like separately from the questions about like how you should manage your staff, like we should treat members of Congress a lot better in my view. Like we should pay them more. We should give them bigger staff. We should let them have personal assistants or like DC butlers or something like that. Because like, you know, like it's weird to have legislative aid told they've got to go wash dishes at the senator's house, but also, like, senators are busy people. It's completely reasonable that they would outsource, like, house cleaning tasks to somebody else. Yeah, I think that's actually an unpopular view probably both of us share, is that I think most people who work in Congress, both members of Congress and senators and their staff, should actually be paid significantly more. You've actually seen their pay stagnate over the past decade or so. And I think, like you're saying, it creates these situations where, you know, you have folks who who are using their staff in kind of inappropriate personal ways. It also makes it a lot more attractive for good people to leave, go lobby where they can earn a bigger salary. Like the whole system, it really is not set up for someone to have like a lengthy career in Congress. So you see kind of a lot of a bit of a bottleneck where you have a lot of lower level staff who are doing these kind of tasks, who are starting to learn how to write policy. And then, you know, Pharma comes along and they can pay you a lot more money than Congress. Congress is capped in how much it can pay you, that they can't raise your salary even though you're doing a great job. Um, I think there would be such huge – and then you end up with industry kind of writing – this is getting a little far afield from the Klobuchar situation – but you end up with industry writing a lot of policy because they've hired all these people. They're showing up with a lot of the expertise that the folks in Congress no longer have. You know, not to say there are a lot of – diligent congressional staffers who I've worked with who are quite smart on policy issues, but they are making the conscious decision to trade a much larger salary and trade a, you know, work lifestyle where you're probably not going to be asked to do the type of tasks you'd be asked to do in Congress. Um, So it it really is a difficult system that we've set up. And I do get like, you know, it, it is not a winning issue for members of Congress to campaign to, like, raise their salaries, to raise their staff salaries. But it ends up with a lot of weird limiting situations that I don't think are great for how policy gets made in Congress. But let's let's take a break, because then I do. We, we should we should rush back to Amy Klobuchar. Support for the weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. I think like life for congressional staffers is not that great uh, for some of the reasons that we've talked about. And like there should be things done systematically to improve it. At the same time, the specific complaint about Klobuchar is not that life as a Klobuchar staffer is bad because the life of congressional staffers in general is bad, but is that she is, in fact, an unusually difficult person to work for. And to the best of my knowledge, like, that is true. Like, there is some, I was saying before that, like, the facts matter to me and it's not 100% clear to me, like, what is true, but, like, that that her office is a below-average quality-of-life place to work seems to be real. And then at the same time, I do think it is true that the extent to which this looms large in her image and has been such a focus of campaign stories reflects a a mentality of misogyny, that there is a expectation that a woman will be a nurturer and a carer. And that there is maybe an ideal that all people will be nurturers and carers, but to learn that a man is not a nurturing and caring person, but he may have other qualities that offset it, is something that we are very comfortable with. You know, like he's doing other stuff, you know, that's fine. Whereas it is seen as a woman's responsibility to be a sort of metaphorical teacher or mother or caring type figure to everybody who is in her vicinity and that to be selfish 
you know, and to be unsparing, to just be mad about the salad screw up and not care about your subordinates' feelings is seen as a bigger violation, right? That it's not that it's not that we don't hold everyone to the theory that like it's good to be nice, but it's I do think like the reason it is such a big deal that Amy Klobuchar seems to be not such a nice boss, just like the reason it was such a big deal that Hillary Clinton was a sort of political opportunist is that like it's not seen as okay for women to behave in these kinds of of violating ways. Well, I think in it, you know, especially for a legislator like Klobuchar, who kind of has this like Midwestern nice vibe going on, like that I think that's kind of when we go back to like where we started our conversation, one of the things that these sabermeticians kind of saw in her and liked about her, she seemed like this, you know, warm, nice, appealing person. And I think that, you know, plays to a very gendered view of who women are and how they interact with people. And then this feels like it is in stark contrast with that image. I think that might be one reason why this gets, you know, more attention than it might be for, you know, a male boss, for a male legislator, for even another female legislator. I don't know if this would get as much much attention because of that contrast. Um, And I think, you know, I, I feel pretty torn about all this stuff because I think, you know, on the one hand, women are just going to get more attention to their leadership style. And I think like women who went or anyone who went into Cleopatra's office might have had a different expectation of what it was like to work there. And I think you might just have less staffers coming forward in a man's office because, you know, they might have thought, you know, this is just how men get angry. You know, he's an important senator. Sometimes he throws a binder, like whatever. That's just what comes with the territory of working for a high pro- high profile senator's office. You might not see them coming forward and those rumors circulating because it's kind of assumed just to be the status quo. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it a good way to manage people. Like everything I've read about Klobuchar's office doesn't suggest it's a type of place I would work. And, you know, the things that trouble me a little bit more than like the salad fork incident or, you know, some of the remarks, which it's really hard to tell, you know, just like the binder, there's this, um, we can't tell if it's like a joke or it really was very mean. This remark she made to three of her staffers one day when she was very thirsty, saying she would trade them for a bottle of water. That feels like the verbal version of the binder. Like, was Uh it just thrown on the ground? Like, was this actually a very mean thing to say? Like, the context feels very important. Um, The things that, like, have worried me, the things I'm more concerned about are the things that are less flashy, like this idea that there was pressure to stay if you were someone who's going to take parental leave. That would be... A really troubling thing about a workplace, there was some I'm reporting, I believe in the New York Times, about her making it difficult for people to move on to other jobs. Like, that seems like a not great management tactic. Those bigger HR management things, those feel a little more troubling to me than, like, these scattered anecdotes I've read where it's really hard to tell out of context, like, what was actually going on there. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say about this, right, like, I've been this whole time trying to, like, maintain two thoughts in my head, right? Like, one is that I feel like there is a gender double standard about this kind of thing. Like, how bad is it? How damning is it to, like, be a shitty boss? Um, But then the other thought I have is that, like, I don't think in this case it makes sense to, like, level down 
right? That like, if anything, we have been too easy mm-hmm. on, right? Like in a, in a different conversation that, that had a different framing, we would be talking about a male politician who has been a bad boss and who has been skating for a long time on this, right? And I think like the feminist take on this would be that like toxic masculinity is hurting people, right? That like this tendency to be forgiving of like men's rage outbursts and like total uncaringness about people below them in hierarchies is bad. And that like we should um, hold men to closer to the expectations we have of women in leadership roles that like they should be kind and respectful to people and caring about them as human beings and not just treat them as like disposable means and you know this is something that i think about uh, a lot as a as a parent of a little boy right that i think there's a there's a there's like a very solid you know consensus in sort of forward thinking you know urbane educated circles about girls right and like how you know it's, it's they all have their futures female t-shirts and you know you like encourage them like be more assertive be more you know this that and the other thing I think the harder thing is, like, with boys, right, it's, like, do we teach them to be less assertive, right? Like, right. do we do we take some of the expectations that are put on girls and, like, try to put them on little boys? And I think that to an extent, like, we have to, right, that, like, there are real virtues to these things. Like, it is unfair to single-handedly you know, hold women to standards of, like, kindness and emotional support and things like that. But it's also, like, the appropriate remedy is not to, like, purge society of that kind of caring and emotional labor. Like, it's actually really important. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It reminds me of something, you know, when I was researching the episode I did for Netflix about the gender wage gap, because I think it ties to a lot of that. One of the things Hillary Clinton wrote in her book, It Takes a Village, is that, you know, we're only going to get to a place of gender equity, you know, not just when we accept women as breadwinners, but we also accept men as caregivers. And I think that transition has been, like, a lot harder to make. Um, I think you see this a lot, like, in how it plays out in parental leave policy, where you see men being offered leave but not taking nearly as much as women. I was doing a bit of research around California has a paid leave policy that they've had for quite some time um, that I was looking at for some work I'm doing. And one of the things that I thought was really notable is that so this paid leave policy is on its face gender neutral. But one of the things you've seen is it's resulted in women taking five more weeks of leave and men taking two more days of leave. Like it is being used in a very gender inequitable way. And I think when you kind of grow up in a society, like I look at my son's daycare and I think most daycares across the country are staffed primarily by women. You know, he is growing up in a world where, like, he is seeing he, – he is a great dad who's super involved, who is a great caregiver. But, you know, for the most part, like, all the caregiving he's going to see in his first years of life are going to be from women. And I think that's going to shape how he sees things, you know, regardless of everything we tell him about being, like, a good, empathetic person. And I think that just shapes, you know, up, you know, through adulthood how we view what role people are having. So – and I think it really goes – And then it goes to, like, what stories are reported, right? Like, who's going to come forward to a reporter and say, you know, this boss is is terrible to work for because, like, they are not adhering to what I expect a boss to act like. So, you know, it seems entirely 
possible that they, I, there are certainly equally bad bosses elsewhere in Congress who, you know, the rumors might not be flying around as much. I don't think the rumors are being ignored, but the rumors might not be flying around as much because it's just not seen as abnormal when it's coming from a male boss. But now, here, here's where my takes get really hot. Okay. I, I think that some of the discourse on the left has gotten a little off the rails around gender bias and female presidential candidates in the wake of Hillary Clinton losing. And to make my point, I, I, I think it's helpful to like turn the time machine back to 2007, 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, right? I think every single person on the broad tent left in American politics agreed that like there is some racial bias in American politics and that this was a potential problem for black politicians. Nobody thought that like the appropriate remedy to that was to run somebody who would alarm white America and lose the election and then do hot takes about how it was bad, right? Like there was a real – there's a thing um, – it's called the, the uh, Jackie Robinson effect, right? And it, it goes back to the fact that Jackie Robinson, the first uh, African-American Major League Baseball player, was way better than the average baseball player. And then for years after he broke the color line, the average black player was significantly better than the average white player, right? And like that was a sign of discrimination. Um, because, you know, they, they were being held to a, to a higher standard. And I think you clearly saw that in politics, right? Like Barack Obama was not just an adequate, like, U.S. senator and orator. He was, like, way above average, right? And that's why, because it was so rare for African-American politicians to represent majority white constituencies. And if you talk to his team all throughout his presidency, right, like, they were very cognizant that, like, they did not want him to show anger in the way that certain other politicians could, right? It was very important that he be a calm, cerebral figure. And I think at times this wound up like not serving the country all that well, like in the depths of the financial crisis that like people sort of wanted somebody to be angry, but they didn't necessarily want like an angry black man to be angry. So we were in a bit of a double bind. But all things considered, very successful politician, Won election twice, uh, got a lot of stuff done, ended his term in office, very, very popular. And like, yes, like he had some unfair burdens on him, but also he won. He blazed some trails. There's been more opportunities for black politicians in his wake. And it may just be that a pioneering woman in presidential politics needs to like deal with the unfairness as a problem and not not just kind of suffer and then like we do articles about how that's not fair. Well, and you actually you see some version of this. There's actually some political scientists, um, Sarah Anzia and Chris Berry at um, Stanford and New Chicago. They wrote a paper in 2010 where they termed something the Jill Robinson effects. So it's actually quite related to this mm -hmm. of women in politics, where one of the things, you know, they had seen for a little while, is that um, female politicians, the women who get elected to Congress just tend to be better at being Congress people than their male counterparts. They, you know, the metric that they use 
is um, their success in delivering federal spending to their districts. And they find that congresswomen secure roughly 9 percent more spending from federal discretionary programs than congressmen. This amounts to a premium of $49 million per year for being represented by a woman. Um, And they argue it's essentially the same sort of thing going on, that if you're going to be a woman elected to political office in the United States, you're often blazing some kind of trail. You are dealing with some kind of gender discrimination that once you get there, you're going to have to outperform in order to kind of keep your job. You know, I think it's even even more so than baseball. Like people are literally voting on whether you get to keep your job every two years when you're in Congress. So you do see something quite similar already playing out for someone like Amy Klobuchar, for, you know, any woman who's being elected to Congress. It seems like they're going to have to prove they're better than the average guy who wants to run for Congress. And it sucks. Like, that's not great. It's also where we are right now. It's a frustrating, it's like a frustrating position to be in, you know, to acknowledge that it exists, you know, and I don't know fully how we grapple with it aside from, you know, continuously running more women and having more women in leadership till, you know, you slowly erode away at it. Over time, you know, the, I remember, yeah. you, you were about this a couple of years ago, right? It's like when women get elected to statewide office, yes. then more women. Yes. More women run. Perceptions of women change. Like you do see this snowball effect, but it's slow, right? Like like we're, we're working against like decades of gender norms and things changing. You know, it's not this like fast change. You know, I think we saw with President Obama serving in office. It's not like, you know racism disappeared after after that happened. No, no. But I mean, I there are more African Americans in statewide office than there were before Obama, right? And then you have others, right? I mean, you had like Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, like they lost in the end, but like they got like fair shots at winnable races. And that hadn't really been happening that much before him. Anyway, I mean, it's all just to say that like actually winning is the most um, efficacious solution that people seem to have Mm -hmm. to this issue, right? That at least, like, from what we can infer from the results of electing women to lower statewide offices, electing a woman president would create more opportunities for women politicians. Yeah, everything we know from the political science research suggests, like, if that's what you want— If your goal is electing women, like, you start with electing women and you just, like, keep trying to run that cycle. And, I mean, we are in a situation. We have more women serving in Congress than ever before. You know, we're not anywhere near gender parity. We're a lot—we're pretty far behind a lot of legislatures elsewhere in the world. But we are at a high for the United States. So you do see it's just, you know, it's just a frustratingly slow task of trying to, you know, get to a place right. where people would be equally likely to complain about a bad male boss and a bad female boss. And in presidential politics, though, I mean, we've had—I'm trying to think, like, how many women presidential candidates in the major parties have we had, right? So there's Hillary Clinton, Carol Mosley Braun, Shirley Chisholm on the Democratic side, more or less, right? Among Republicans, Carly Fiorina and um, Elizabeth Dole, I remember, right? So that's like five people of whom we can debate how many of them were like really, really serious contenders. I think arguably only Hillary has ever had like a moment in time when like it really seemed like, okay, that person might become president, 
you know, like out of that whole list. Whereas now, you know, you have between Klobuchar, uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Christian Gillibrand. Um, that's four different people who like there's a big field. They're sort of all underdogs. But like nobody would be shocked if you of a visitor from two years in the future told me one of those four people became president, right? It wouldn't be like, how did that happen, right? You know, and then there's like Tulsi Gabbard, some other fringier people in the race. But like, that is a huge increase. You know, like the the historical baseline is is really, really, really low. And um, I mean, I don't know like exactly what what follows from this, but just that like, in a weird way, I think it's possible to understate the value of like doing the work and winning. Yes. I think um, winning, <laughs> pro winning. As far as far as we know. And you know, I, I don't know where that that leaves us. And like it's not it's not fair to like be told you have to be more perfect than than perfect, but I don't know. Like it maybe just is what it is. Um and then, you know, the problem for Klobuchar also is that there's not a ton behind her candidacy other than the theory that she'd be super popular, right? In a way that, like, Elizabeth, we, we've had, like, yeah. a million Weeds episodes about different Elizabeth Warren things. So to the extent that, like, if you heard something that reflected poorly on her, it would be perfectly coherent to be, like, putting that aside. There's, like, this whole other thing. Right. Whereas you are very vulnerable when you run a campaign that is a little like like low, low on substance to being derailed by sort of, you know, stuff that you might otherwise say, who cares? Right. I mean, like an interesting contrast is Senator Sanders, who has also dealt with a number of stories about the way his campaign runs, about the way staff are treated, but has a very clear policy vision that a lot of people care about with you know, his Medicare for All platform, his other platforms, where someone, you know, we've had multiple episodes about the various policies that he's proposing. So you you could see the calculation of, like, I don't really like that. And again, like, I, I totally admit, like, a lot of this is wrapped up in gender, too. Like, I think someone, I think a man generally was more likely to be let off the hook for this kind of behavior. Um, so putting that caveat in there, you could see a voter saying, you know, I don't like the way he treats his staff, but I really want a universal health care system. It's harder for me to, you know, see the person who says, I don't like how she teaches staff, but, like, I'm real jazzed up about antitrust, and, like, that is my issue. And I, I know it's not a perfect comparison, again, because, like, gender is playing into this in a lot of ways that I think are important. But I think you're right. Like, when we look at all these candidates, she's by far the least policy-heavy. I, I will say she's also the newest, right? Like, we're seeing yes. policies— roll out week by week. Like Elizabeth Warren just put out her pre-K one last week. I wouldn't be I would expect that as Klobuchar settles into her run, we're going to see more policy documents from her. But I think she is more of a policy unknown to me going into the primary than the other folks who have, you know, thrown their hats in the ring so far. Right. And then I think this also matters in terms of like opposition, right? Like I think it is unquestionably true that Sanders gets let off the hook by some people for some stuff that they would find objectionable from other people. But the flip side of that is that people who don't like Bernie Sanders, of whom there are also many, they dislike him for ideological reasons. 
you know, and they might like throw other stuff at him to try to take him down. But like fundamentally, they don't want a self-proclaimed socialist who won't join the Democratic Party to take over. You know, so it's like you polarize into if you run a strongly ideological candidacy, right, you polarize along ideological grounds. If you don't, you polarize along personality grounds, right? And I think like the fair comparison to Klobuchar of people who are uh, buzzed male side is not Bernie, but probably Beto O'Rourke, right? Who's like a similarly sort of hazy in terms of his his issue profile, right? But who people, I mean, people like him because he's likable, essentially, right? And it's a good I think, live journal too. Yeah, well, and I think it is fair to ask, right? Like, could a woman become a political superstar based purely on this kind of hazy charisma? Um, could a woman politician get away with this kind of like meandering road trip, right? Or like no. like that that kind of stuff? And I'm no, I'm skeptical. No. You know, that like th- that to me seems more like it, it doesn't cut the like intraparty argument nearly as closely. Right. Because it's like I see a lot of like Klobuchar Bernie comparisons because they they pull apart ideologically. But it's actually Beto who is similar to Klobuchar, but a man and who I think. Doesn't have the same knocks against him, but like it's weird. He's there's weird stuff going on there that I I could not imagine a woman who like lost <laughs> a race and then like flipped out, abandoned her school age children to go drive around Kansas and talk to people in bars and write a very meandering medium blog about it. Yeah, all explore the while. her feelings. Like I I really don't think that would fly. Yeah. Well, we'll know we've made it to gender equity when a woman can get popular doing that. All right. We actually, like I said, we have, we have a really interesting, different white paper. Like the greatest one of all no time. No white paper we've ever done before. Let's take a break. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Okay, so today we're doing something a little bit different. We are talking about a white paper that, as far as we can tell, does not exist. It's fake. <laughs> so this was a really interesting that ca- thing that came up a few weeks ago that I've been wanting to talk about. Um, one of our reporters, Kelsey Piper, she was reading this article in the, in the New York Times Magazine where she noticed this statistic that jumped out at her. And I'll just read the sentence from the 
article where the writer Clive Thompson writes, in a 2016 experiment conducted with a tech recruiting firm, Speak with a Geek, 5,000 resumes with identical information were submitted to firms. When identifying details were removed from the resumes, 54% of the women received interview offers. When gendered names and other biographical information were given, only 5% of them did. Now, Kelsey's a reporter now, but she actually has a history as a recruiter. She worked as a recruiter before joining us. And she saw this and was like, that does not pass the smell test. The difference is so, so large. And you know what she had seen in her own work, it just did not align with it. So she starts to dig into this. And she finds somewhat incredibly that the study just doesn't seem to exist. Um, The New York Times article cites an article from CNET, which cites a study done by a tech recruiting firm called Speak with a Geek that has since closed. She reaches out to the author who says he's never actually seen the study. He was citing the CNET article. um, And he starts digging in. Clive starts looking for the study. He can't find it and actually takes the sentence out of his story in the Times, the online version, and issues a correction. And I I think it it was a really—you should read—Kelsey wrote a long piece about this, about kind of how this spread, about the reasons she was skeptical given her background, and how this really, you know, how an article no one has ever seen can suddenly show up in the New York Times. I thought it was a really fascinating look at how, you know, we talk about a lot of papers that definitely exist, and they get cited in our stories, they get cited elsewhere, but how a— paper that does not seem to exist, that no reporter, as far as we know of, has ever seen, has now ended up cited in multiple news articles. I mean, it's a strange story. I mean, it's also a story about, it's always interesting showing you sort of implicitly, like, what people would would like to be true. It would be sort of both, like, great to have, like, totally unambiguous, like, audit study results showing that the reason women are underrepresented in big tech companies is that there's just, like, blatant, crazy levels of overt discrimination in hiring, both because, like, that would be a great article to write up and also because it suggests some, like, relatively easy fixes. You know what I mean? That, like, if if you could just... You know, there was like a story. I I think there was some pretty good evidence of that kind of discrimination against uh, musicians and Mm -hmm. orchestra performances. So there was like a move to go to a certain kind of blind audition thing. And it's both like a good story and also like actually an encouraging one because there was like a pretty simple sort of structural fix. Whereas if you're going to say something more plausible about like, you know— differential levels of interest in the subject that, like, may have partially genetic roots that propagate throughout years of, like, an education system and learning and, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, like, big social things that are, like, probably beyond the power of an individual hiring manager to alter, but are also the responsibility of leaders in the field to do something about. Like, it's sort of a bummer, you know? Like... I think a realistic take on, like, gender issues in computer science does not suggest that you, the well-meaning HR vice president, can, like, just be like, we're going to fix it now. Right. And I think one of the things Kelsey writes about is actually there is some evidence that degendering applications can make things worse because one of the things that's true right now is you just have a lot more men majoring in computer science. Only about 18 percent of computer science majors 
are women. So if you're going to go specifically on like the credentials someone's bringing to a job, you're just more likely to get a lot of men. If your goal is to bring women into more tech-based fields, one of the things she writes about is that this gender-blinding situation is just missing the point, that you're going to get the people who have historically been advantaged in the industry before. They're going to do better in a blind situation. And I think you're right. It's like a situation where you want to do the right thing. It feels like, oh, okay, like we can solve it. Like, And it is, like, I mean, like looking back, if this was true, like wouldn't you have expected like if it if it could have that big of an effect, you'd kind of expect this to take hold, that we'd be making more strides. I think one of the other things Kelsey points out about the orchestra situation is it is true it really did reduce a lot of disparities, but it took years. It wasn't like they just ran an experiment and then like all of a sudden orchestras were gender equal. It's something that like slowly over time changed over. Um, and I think it is like a disappointing study to read in terms of like how you think about we as reporters who deal with numbers, like, do our journalism. I think there can be a temptation to, you know, see a number in another story, link to that story, when really the thing you should be doing is going to read the actual study. There are all these barriers, and I will say there are all these barriers that make that the much easier thing to do. Like, one of the things I confront a lot is journalists don't get subscriptions to academic journals. So usually if I want to read an academic study— I have to message an intern at Vox who has a uh, log into their college library. I have to I have to message the researcher to see if they'll send me a copy. Most academic journals are behind some pretty expensive paywalls, so Vox does not subscribe to them. No publication I've worked at really subscribes to academic journals. I have, you know, complimentary press logins to view few big healthcare ones like JAMA and Health Affairs, but all the incentives I think are are wrong here. The incentives lead you to do what this writer did and just cite another article and assume that they read the story. It would be great if academic research were a lot more accessible so that the incentives, it was a lot harder to, it was a lot easier to do the right thing and like actually read the study. Yes. But I mean, I do think when I see the popularity of something like this go around, right, like what always reminds me is that I think like the the broad middle ground in America is uncomfortable with big demographic disparities when they reveal themselves, right? Like it seems bad to see women so underrepresented in certain kinds of fields. People are also very uncomfortable with like hard affirmative action and quota type policies, you know, like like deeply, deeply uncomfortable with that idea. So there is like a profound desire to believe in these kind of like one weird trick type scenarios that like you want to say, okay, we are going to remediate the disparity, but we are not going to lower the bar for anybody. We are not going to do quotas. And I just like, I think that it is unrealistic, you know? So like a really interesting uh, study that that I wrote about, a, a very real study done by Raj Chetty and his Equality of Opportunity team, it looked at inventors, right? It was oh, very right. rich We talked set. about this on the show. Yeah. And like basically what it's showing is that like to improve the pipeline of future female inventors, you need to raise the profile of the existing stock of women inventors, right? Because the role modeling effect uh, is evidently quite real, 
right? So this means like doing things that people are going to be a little bit uncomfortable with, right? Like nobody wants to say, well, we're hyping this woman up a little bit more than her scientific contributions technically merit because women are underrepresented in this field and we need them to get more attention. But like actually it's a good idea, right? What what alarms people about that is like the idea of that kind of like affirmative action for creating science celebrities, you worry that it's going to be like a slippery slope to like next thing you know, like all these totally inept like girl inventors are going to be running around. But like what the research shows is that like, no, that it's like actually skilled people Mm -hmm. are being driven out of the field by a lack of role models who they identify with. Right. But you need to do something to like create those role models. Like you have to like take hard steps, you know, and that can mean like checking your own biases. But like to be maximally effective, it needs to mean like going beyond checking your own biases, right? To just like actually saying like, it is true that like most of the inventors out there are men. Like most of the famous inventions that have been done were made by men. And that fact is dissuading girls from becoming inventors. So you need to, like, have your kids' books, like, have more woman scientists in them than is reflective of reality to, like, encourage – you're trying to, like, create the reality that you want, right? And that's just not as congenial. Right. As like the belief that like, well, if we like gender blinded the resumes, we could fix the problem in 10 minutes. Right. I mean, gender blinding is a – an easier solution that would be nice to think that it had such a such a significant effect and turns out that the the numbers just aren't there but i think i i was very impressed with how the writer reacted to this i will say that he took the criticism very seriously he ended up taking it out of his story i think there can often be a instinct to kind of like hunker down and defend your your work and he was very magnanimous about it and oh, i do give him a lot was of credit for in, that in terms of like like the in internet being internet a toxic cesspool, <laughs> yeah. this was like really inspiring. Yes. Like like Kelsey wrote like a thorough and like very persuasive debunking and of this. very friendly debunking. Yes. And he had like a re- honest and responsible reaction to it. And everybody all around was like, job well done, guys. Right. And we kind of It was of like a nice 30-minute episode. We all learned something at the end. Um, you know, and there's a real uh, – to, to tie it all up, you know, like um, – displaying uh, some kindness and concern in presentation of the criticism rather than being an asshole about it, I think led to a better result for everybody and that we should encourage everybody to be more empathetic in their yes. behavior. Yes. And with that, come, weeds. come empathetically into the Weeds Facebook group. And criticize us, but empathetically. <laughs> no, nurture your fellow commenters. <laughs> encourage us uh, all to do to do better in the future um, thanks for listening uh, thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld and the weeds will return on Friday